The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. And today I'm honored to welcome my guest, Dr. Raut Rygart. He is Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. He is one of the nation's top pediatric experts on pesticides and has been called the father of the children's environmental health movement. He is co-editor of the sixth edition of the EPA's Recognition and Management of Pesticide Poisonings. He serves on the board of the Children's Environmental Health Network and is president of the board of Beyond Pesticides. Since 1972, he's also been involved in comprehensive childhood lead poisoning prevention programs. Dr. Rygart received his medical degree from Harvard University, and I'm honored to have you here with me today, Dr. Rygart. Welcome. Hello. How are you? I'm very well, and I'm delighted to have you because I think that this is a topic that is so extremely important. As a pediatrician, I wonder if you can explain to our listeners why children are more vulnerable or susceptible to toxins within their environment. Well, the important point is that children are developing, and all of their organ systems are developing, and the process of development is much, uh, if you will, more susceptible to injury by a variety of influences. And one of the more important are the toxicants and toxins in our environment. Mm-hmm. Now, I believe it was in 2014 where you spoke in Portland. It was a Beyond Pesticides Forum. And you spoke about children not being little adults. Can you explain what you mean by that? Well, I've made actually several statements about that. The one that all pediatricians make is that children are not simply little adults in the sense that you can't, in looking at the effects of toxicants, you can't say, well, we'll just look at what it does to a 70-kilo male adult and compare that to a, well, a three-kilogram newborn, a seven-pound newborn, mm-hmm. because these children not only are growing and developing, but they absorb toxicants differently from every root on their skin, in their gastrointestinal tract, and by breathing, they respond differently because they're developing. And so you really need to look at the developmental processes as you think about how things might affect children. Uh, The other statement that is actually original with me that I made to EPA because of their reliance on animal studies was I said, not only are children not little adults, but they're not large rats. And you can't, in fact, extrapolate one-to-one animal studies to children. So it's very important when you're thinking about toxins and toxicants in our environment to have specific studies that look at the effect of those agents on children Mm -hmm. as they're developing. 
Well, in preparing for this interview, I went online and I found a video clip of you on C-SPAN from August 22nd of 1994. You've been doing this work for a long time. But you said then that every day we see environmental illness. And I'm wondering, have things gotten better or worse, and in what ways? Well, that's a difficult question. I think, in fact, some exposures have become better. For instance, we've done a great deal in in my first area of interest, which is preventing childhood lead poisoning, which is very much less common. Uh, Likewise, with regard to pesticides, my other area of interest, we see today far fewer acute pesticide poisonings. We used to see children critically ill with severe poisonings, often from the organophosphate pesticides. As these agents have been phased out, our interest has shifted a great deal from the acute poisonings to the more chronic effects of of toxicants in our environment. And unfortunately, we seem to introduce daily more of these toxicants. So we're doing better in some areas and worse in others. So I think what is important and very helpful is that the general public has become much more aware of exposure to toxic agents in our environment and much more proactive in trying to avoid them by eating better foods, by changing their habits, by uh, less use of pesticides around the home. So I think one of the real major advances I've seen in the last 30 or 40 years is that people are much more aware that there's bad things that can happen to their children if they're exposed to them and are being much more proactive about avoiding toxic agents. Mm-hmm. One of the messages that we get, you know, as a dietitian, we are targeted many times by the produce industry, for example. The food industry in general has a series of messages that they would like us to bring to consumers. And one of them has been enforcing the outdated notion that the dose makes the poison. So in other words, the recommendation is don't worry about fruits and vegetables that have been sprayed with pesticides because the residues are small, they are well within EPA limits, and it's riskier for children not to eat fruits and vegetables. So I wonder what your thoughts are on that, the idea of low-level residues being omnipresent in the diet. Well, I think I can speak to that in two ways. One is absolutely, as a pediatrician, I encourage children eating lots of fresh fruits and vegetables, which is a very healthy thing to do. On the other hand, we have become, over the last, particularly the last 15 years, much more aware of low-level effects of pesticides and other chemicals in our food so that, and to look at it from another important perspective, we're now realizing that many of the responses to toxins are likely to be so-called nonlinear responses so that there may be effects, particularly with chronic exposure, at levels much below what would be detected by the animal testing that's 
used to establish, quote, safe levels of pesticides and other chemicals. By the same token, we've always known that materials that cause cancer have no threshold, so that there is no safe level of carcinogens. Now, in 1996, when Congress passed the Food Quality Protection Act, meant to better protect children from pesticides, they actually got rid of something called the Delaney Clause that said there could be no trace of a carcinogen in any processed foods and replaced it with reasonable certainty of no harm, mm. which is a quite a different standard and one that's, in a, in a way, very hard to interpret. So I think that it's really a false construct to say we shouldn't worry about small amounts of these materials because it's pretty clear that at least for many of them, with chronic exposure particularly, very low levels can cause long-term injury, and particularly to children. Mm-hmm. I remember when you were speaking last year in 2014, you mentioned that the sixth edition of the Recognition and Management of Pesticide Poisonings was almost ready to be printed. And you mentioned that what made this edition different from those before it was that it contained this section on chronic exposure and what kinds of illnesses result from chronic exposure. And I wonder if you could explore that a little bit with us. Well, let's, uh, again, to put it in a context, when the what used to be called Morgan's Manual, which then became the Recognition and Management of Pesticide Poisons, was first published. It was meant as a handbook to guide clinicians in managing acute poisonings. As the years have gone on, we've realized that there's a lot to exposure to pesticides that's not characterized by acute poisoning. Now, many folks choose to ignore that, and my experience, particularly when dealing with members of Congress, if you go into their office and talk to the health staffers about a particular agent, such as pesticides, they'll always want to say, well, how many people died? Mm. Uh, and, and in fact, that's not the point in looking at the chronic effects. So in the chronic effects chapter, we specifically looked at certain areas of exposure. And the one that, to me, is extraordinarily important is neurodevelopmental effects. And we've now learned that pesticide exposures at very low levels can cause injury both to children and adults, and in fact, even very low exposures to certain pesticides prior to birth, that is exposure through the mother, can lead to at least long-lasting, if not lifelong effects. Uh, we feel it's probably lifelong effects. We also looked at the pesticidal agents which are known to, or thought to cause cancer, and we looked at some associations between childhood cancers and pesticides, including leukemia and brain tumors, and certain lymphomas in adults. And then we looked at what has become very important, which is the so-called endocrine disruptor effects, which there's a great deal of animal data and significant uh, human data now, leading us to believe that certain pesticides can cause precocious puberty 
alteration of lactation, breast cancer, problem with male reproduction and prostate cancer, as well as alteration of sexual development in both directions. There are pesticides that cause a shift towards feminization and others towards masculinization, and then asthma. Uh, there's a significant amount of evidence about association between asthma and pesticides. So the areas that, to me, are most compelling, I think, are the cancer, neurodevelopmental effects, and an alteration of the endocrine system, all of which we reviewed in the sixth edition at great length, actually, with many, many references so that folks can judge for themselves the strength of the evidence. And we can provide a link to that. This is a free publication through the EPA, and people can access it online, and they can also request a free copy. I need to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, and we are speaking with Dr. Raut Rygart. He is a professor emeritus of pediatrics at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston and one of the nation's top pediatric experts on pesticides. Dr. Rygart, I wanted to go back to some of these chronic illnesses that we see today. And I think one of the dilemmas that we face is being able to find a smoking gun when there are so many offending toxins in the environment. Is it the endocrine disruptors from pesticides or is it the endocrine disruptors from plastics? Is it lead, mercury, all of these different compounds coming together being problematic, especially for neurodevelopment, and yet without an ability to find a smoking gun, how can we really create policies to withdraw or restrict the use of these compounds? Well, that's obviously a difficult question and speaks to one of the important defects in the so-called process of risk assessment, which is that virtually all the risk assessment paradigms that we use in regulating pesticides and other chemicals are based on one agent at a time. Right. Uh, and in fact, if you or your children are exposed to multiple agents, the interaction between those agents may be very important. They may be additive or they may be what we call synergistic, that is, being exposed to two or more may have a greater effect than adding up the potential effect of each of them. I think what this really suggests to me is that our approach needs to be cutting back on all of the agents that we have shown to be toxic, either in animal models or in human epidemiologic situations. So it would be very prudent, uh, for instance, to virtually eliminate pesticides from our food production processes. It would be very prudent to decrease the uh, what they call the, the contact exposures, that is, uh, contamination of food by containers or in the processing of foods, so that there are lots of things we can do that can, in a way, comprehensively approach limitation of exposures even without identifying a single agent, because it clearly is not a single agent that's causing these these problems that we see. And for instance, in the endocrine disruption area, the alteration of sexual development, we can approach approach it comprehensively, 
and that's probably the wisest approach. Mm-hmm. I think one of the things that frustrates me so much is when I look at the agricultural chemicals that have recently been approved. So we've got new genetically modified corn and soybeans and cotton that will now be resistant to both Roundup or glyphosate, uh, that's the active ingredient in Roundup, as well as 2,4-D and dicamba. And just as you say, we can be smart and just understand that there are going to be synergistic relationships with these chemicals, and yet when the EPA goes to approve these crops, it's with an understanding of each individual compound. They don't look at the mixtures of these compounds. And I fear for children living in rural communities who are going to be exposed now to this extra dose of an herbicide, and we really don't know how they interact in the environment and in our bodies. Yes, that's correct. In a way, the discussion has been a little skewed in that there's a great fear of the process of genetic modification, which in fact may be in many cases valid. For instance, when scientists put new genetic material into a plant or seed, it's a sort of a a shotgun approach. They don't know exactly where it's going to end up and how it might affect other genes in the same region. So there are some concerns about that. And when we're told that, well, it's just like we always did before, we just kept crossing till we came up with what we wanted. In this case, we're specifically putting something in, but they're not specifically placing it. So I think there's a bit of arrogance there, although to date, the actual process of modifying crops and products uh, has not been shown by itself to be extremely harmful, although um, my my experience over the years says everything we think is not harmful often turns out to be. But I think it is important what you mentioned, which is that you destroy the whole ecosystem by pushing large amounts of chemicals that previously might have been used in smaller amounts. And and higher and higher amounts of glyphosate have been used as weeds have become resistant to it. And so now we're, as you mentioned, uh, putting 2,4-D and dicamba in there. Uh, I'm particularly concerned about 2,4-D um, as it's a really potent neurotoxicant and was part of uh, the famous Agent Orange which was used to defoliate Vietnam and has caused enormous problems with neurodevelopmental problems, uh, birth malformations, and and probably higher rates of cancer. So the fact that we will now be exposing persons likely to higher and higher doses of 2,4-D to me is frankly quite terrifying. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I think that the genetic modification process or activity that we've gone through is greatest risk is in the enormous increase in certain individual pesticides and that we're in a sort of treadmill where as one becomes less useful, such as Roundup glyphosate, uh, we now add in dicamba and 2,4-D and in a few years, it'll be something else we'll be adding in because the 
weeds will become resistant to those chemicals. So I think we really need to step back a bit and think about what we're doing to the whole ecosystem with these genetically modified crops. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's my largest concern with these crops as well, is the use of herbicides, the increasing use of herbicides. But, you know, there's also the exposure to children with household chemicals and lawn chemicals. And I thought it was interesting that Chemlon changed its name to True Green, and yet the chemicals that they're using remain the same. And I worry or struggle sometimes with explaining these relationships between these innocent-sounding chemicals that are so nonchalantly used in our environment and how they might potentially harm children, not, as you say, in an acute toxicity situation, but more of this chronic or long-term exposure. And I wonder, when you meet with parents with young children, or you or any other pediatrician, How common is it for pediatricians to talk to parents about, you know, what are you feeding your children and are you treating your lawn with chemicals? Is this an everyday conversation? It's everyday, but it's not every pediatrician. And, you know, one of the things that we've been promoting is better knowledge of pediatricians about the risks of these. And you may be aware that In the last two years, the Academy of Pediatrics has released policy statements on the benefits of organic foods, as well as another policy statement regarding the hazards of pesticides. Uh, These policy statements are widely distributed to pediatricians and are meant to make very specific recommendations to public agencies, to pediatricians, and by extension to their families on behaviors that protect children from pesticides and improve their diets, specifically by eating organic foods. So I think we are making some real advances. When these were presented a couple of years ago at our national meeting in New Orleans, the room was packed with pediatricians who were very interested in organic food and protecting children from the hazards of pesticides. If you have a parent or if you are addressing a group of consumers and they have questions about how different chemicals in their environment might have impacted their children or wondering which ones to eliminate from their environment, is there a place where parents can go for more information? Well, I think one really good source is the Academy of Pediatrics website, which is a public site. You can get to it at aap.org, and these policy statements are readily available. There's specific, what do you call it, public or parent... um, Like fact sheets? Fact sheets on there. Another source specific for pesticides, of course, is Beyond Pesticides, which has an outstanding website that goes through all of the chemicals and has some very good advice on how to avoid the risks of pesticides. The uh, Consumer Reports mm-hmm. has published a whole series of articles about which foodstuffs are most likely to cause injury from pesticides and how to avoid those injuries. So there's an enormous amount of material available to the public very easily particularly in the 
internet era. And then for local poison control centers, if parents suspect that their child has been exposed or has consumed something, is that the best place for them to go? That's a good source. To me, the best source, which I'm not sure is available to the public but is available to their medical providers, is the National Pesticide Information Network. I think it's called Network. Network, I think. I'll find it and I'll provide that number. It's uh, it's at Oregon State. It's actually an outgrowth of a project we started here in South Carolina in the 70s called the National Pesticide Telecommunications Network, but it's been renamed now. Uh, It's an excellent source on pesticides, which I think is still only accessible in depth in person by medical providers, but is online. Their materials are online and they're very easily accessible online. Yes, and I actually I see that here in your recognition and management of pesticide poisonings. It is indeed the National Pesticide Information Center, and we'll provide a link for that as well. You know, we just have a few minutes left, so I want to make sure that I give you an opportunity to bring forth anything that you would like our listeners to know about this topic. You know, I think that things change very rapidly, and and every day we're learning more about the hazards of certain chemicals and other agents in our environment. And the newest area is the concept that both chemicals and exposures, but also what we call adverse childhood experiences such as uh, divorce in the family, single parents, child abuse, all of these can cause alteration in the genetic system. It's something we call epigenetics. That is, these things that happen in life, both physical agents and chemicals, but also life events, can alter the expression of genes by these so-called epigenetic mechanisms and can alter them in a lifelong fashion so that as we learn more about epigenetics, we're learning about the interaction of the sort of nurturing environment and chemicals in altering how children grow up and finding that many of these, the the chemicals as well as the experiences, if they are adverse in early childhood, lead to lifelong problems such as hypertension and diabetes and all of the ills of modern society. So pediatricians are now (laughs) focusing not only on improving children's environment to chemical and other agents, but also improving their environment with regard to providing nurturing environments and and trying to ameliorate the effects of of divorce and abuse and, and drug use in the family and alcoholism and all these other adverse childhood experiences. So it's gotten... More complicated, but more hopeful as we learn that we can do things to improve all of these situations. 
Well, Dr. Reichert, I want to thank you so much for being my guest. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to thank my guest and remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Again, we have been speaking with Dr. Rout Reichart, Professor Emeritus of Pediatrics at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston and one of the nation's top pediatric experts on pesticides called the father of the children's environmental health movement. Thank you so much for being with me today. Oh, you're very welcome. I hope it helps.